you can refer to it as God, you can refer to it as the universe, you can refer to it in all of these different ways that science and spiritual traditions point to, but we forget that we forget these fundamental truths that every person is my brother, every person is my sister, and that is that. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. We are on here with Keith Gilmore. Keith is a writer, speaker, and coach who writes primarily on culture, ethics, psychology, spirituality, philosophy, and psychedelics. He's the co-founder of Texture Life Coaching and offers one of the top-ranked psychedelic integration coaching programs in the country. Keith offers a 12-week community program called The Integrated Man, which is a free program for men to have support, get real, and share wisdom. I'm excited to join the group, and it would mean so much to me if you took the opportunity to check out Keith's program, too. Of course, while you're online, please like and subscribe to the podcast. A growing listener base is vital for Neurons to Nirvana to continue to allow our guests to have a platform to introduce new concepts and content. Let's not keep Keith waiting. Keith, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon, man. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here, Tom. I'm excited to have you on. I am very eager to talk to you about what you're doing, and I'm thrilled to talk about it because I see a lot of value in it and can't wait for you to share it with my listeners. So tell me a little bit about what you do and the listeners. Sure. I do coaching, and I work with individuals and I work with groups. For the individuals, I do life coaching that helps people really oriented toward embodying their highest self and coming to terms with themselves and finding their sources of meaning and purpose. Part of that work is helping people prepare for and integrate psychedelic experiences, which is becoming something that is occurring more and more as it becomes more culturally sanctioned and more available. And the group work I do is working with men, holding support groups, as well as doing group coaching work, coursework, to help men get into alignment with themselves. So those are kind of the main channels that I'm working through. Right. That's why I was super excited to speak to you because culturally, films, media, whatever, males as a gender, I feel as though we're supposed to suppress our feelings and not show any chinks in armor or show our emotions or any types of, of vulnerability. I mean, growing up, I speak about this in earlier episodes. I've been had battles of depression, bouts of depression since I was 16 and on. I have general 
anxiety disorder, ADHD, and then of course, uh, depression. I lost my mother last year. So dealing with grief and then my father, uh, before that to cancer. So for me, therapy has been helpful in the past. So when my father was not doing well and terminally ill with cancer of the esophageal lower, he, uh, I was seeing a therapist and it was helpful, but he was also, we had a very strong relationship. We were, I would say he was my best friend. And after he passed away, I handled it as best I could. But even years after, five years after he passed away, there was still this void and grief and mourning of his loss of our companionship. I mean, we just had things like, uh, I'm a University of Georgia grad, so Georgia football is a big deal. And sports was a bonding thing, fishing, hunting. And, you know, even when I would watch a football game, he would call me during halftime. For instance, this national championship, when we finally won one, I told myself, and I told a friend, man, would I give to have my dad just call me and be like, what the hell are they doing? You know, blah, blah, blah. So I was going through therapy and it was helpful, but it was not, I knew that I needed something. I'm not the most patient person. So I had familiarity with psychedelics, LSD and psilocybin has helped me with my depression. Some might say family and friends that I was self-medicating, mm. but it helped me a, a great deal to alleviate my depression. And that's why I'm so excited that at least in Oregon, we're now on the forefront of this actually becoming a reality of having it in a therapeutic set setting medicinally where it's legal. And because, as I say, set and setting is important, right? Whether you need to share about your trauma and so forth. So that's why I was so fascinated with what you're doing. Tell me how you integrated with your program, Psychedelics, and how it became so vital and what you're trying to do and your vision and passion. Yeah, I also in my personal life, I've benefited greatly from my own exploration with psychedelics. And it, it's funny you bring up the term self-medicating that maybe people have shared that term with you in a disparaging way to yes. dissuade you from what you're doing. But if you look at what the culturally sanctioned forms of self-medicating that we have are, it's basically alcohol or it's ideological pigeonholing. And these are ways that we actually divorce ourselves from our true humanness. Whereas the psychedelics bring us into contact with our true humanness. They remind us who we are, what we're doing here, what is meaningful, what's purposeful, and that we all share in a a, a shared experience. So it's promising and exciting that this is now being recognized in the culturally sanctioned modalities, the universities, the scientific right. domain. 
it's being recognized and promoted and uh, shown to have tremendous efficacy for things like depression, for things like PTSD, anxiety, end of life anxiety, all of these things that people are tremendously struggling with. So for me, it was my personal journey of experimentation. And then as I learned more about it, and as I started taking it more seriously, realizing there's something very crucial here, and it holds potential for a lot of healing, a lot of release, a lot of transcendence of these cultural patterns that are keeping us in these depressed, stuck places. And so with that, I wanted to integrate myself with this psychedelic renaissance that's happening and be of service in a way that I knew I could be well, which is helping people to adequately, safely prepare for having these experiences and make sense of them, bring the, the gold out of the cave from their experiences so that they don't remain trapped in the same unhelpful patterns that we all get stuck in. Yeah. Vicious cycle, just cyclical and you get it sort of in a rabbit hole of negative thoughts or siloed, whether it's your own or family members, friends. For me personally, I, I, I took a leap of faith. I mean, if you don't mind sharing, which psychedelics did you experiment with? Yeah, I've experimented with a number of them. Uh, mushrooms has been my most close companion, I would say. Uh, my entryway into the space and it still remains uh, the medicine that I've derived the most growth and healing from, but I've gone into many different domains, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca, DMT, peyote, and each of these things has its own, its own offering own flavor, but it seems like they're all coalescing on this fundamental truth that we are all human beings, brothers and sisters all, and that love is the most important thing. And the most powerful thing yeah. is, is essential to life without it you will live in despair, hence why depression. If you don't have that interconnectedness with the world and loved ones, you you will suffer or, or you will deal with a lot of trials and tribulations, to say the least. Yes, and we all will and we all do. And, of course, I recognize that these things that I'm saying sound like platitudes or cliches, and on some level they are, but it's because it touches such a fundamental truth that it has been propagated throughout culture. And it speaks to why the psychedelics 
have this special role, which is to help us experience and understand. Because if we look at a lot of the spiritual modalities that have been handed down, it's a lot of uh, writings or teachings, and those things are very valuable. They're very valuable, but it is not the same as having a direct experience touching the numinous and feeling it yourself from inside, being encased in it, and bringing that back with you. It's very different than being told or shown uh, these these fundamental truths. While you're sitting in a chair across, sitting across from your therapist and so forth, it's a totally different experience. Numinous, you want to elaborate? I've heard you use that word on another podcast. Enlighten me and the listeners. Sure. So the idea of the numinous is that it is, I mean, it's that which is beyond. It's the ineffable, that which cannot be spoken. It is, uh, you can refer to it as God. You can refer to it as the universe. You can refer to it in all of these different ways that science and spiritual traditions point to but it's really the ultimate reality of which we all partake, of which we're all interwoven with at every moment. But we get, and you use the word siloed, which I think is so appropriate. We get siloed, which if you think of a silo, it's a big tube. So these big tubes are placed over us and that becomes our universe. That becomes what we see, what we experience, and we forget because our culture is so distracting, because there's so much demanding our attention, we forget that we forget these fundamental truths that every person is my brother, every person is my sister, and that is that. Yeah. You mentioned ayahuasca. For me personally, community, I talk about this concerning mental health, but also with the ceremony, the community and the shaman, that interconnectedness enhanced my experience, even the painful parts of my vision, so to speak, and the purging, as you know. It's very important. And how many ceremonies have you participated in regarding ayahuasca? Uh, several over several years. Okay. And how long ago, how old were you, if you don't mind me asking, when you first drank the Mother Aya, La Medicina? (laughs) (laughs) Ayahuasca, I would say maybe three years ago. Were you in South America or elsewhere? You don't have to disclose exactly, of course. Uh, I was, yeah, in the States in a ceremony. And I think you're exactly right to highlight that communal aspect of it, which is such a crucial aspect of that particular medicine, of that particular ceremony. It's you plugging into the group consciousness in a way where you're there to do your own work and break through what you need to, but also in support of everybody else who is there. So it gives this kind of dual meaning to the experience where I'm here to, right. to heal, to release myself, and I'm here 
as a steadfast member of this group to help everybody get through this challenging experience. So with your coaching and uh, your, your groups, what approach are you taking to help them basically feel like they're ready to partake in, in a psychedelic experience? What kind of expectations fill me in on your approach? To me, the most important thing in any psychedelic work, psychological work, and really just being in the world is for you to trust yourself. Trust yourself. You know in your heart what it is you need. And nobody else, no other institution, no other uh, system of rules, no other individual can tell you what you need, what is best for you. And so I always, I really emphasize that point. Trust yourself because you know, and only you know. And it's good to listen to a variety of information that will help guide you, but you have to make the decision. And so when it comes to a psychedelic experience, which it is a big decision to undertake because it's so foreign to any other thing that you've experienced and it's scary, it's intimidating and that's okay. That's okay. It's always going to be scary (laughs) pretty much every time regardless of how much experience I accrue, I still have the pre-flight jitters. And, you know, so I wouldn't say being afraid is a deterrent, but listening to yourself, am I ready to do this? Have I prepared adequately? And preparing can look like a lot of things. It can look like having a meditation practice. It can look like um, keeping a journal. It can look like being in therapy any number of things, but anything that's helping you get in touch with yourself, with your core self is going to help you prepare. And then safety is just paramount because these things can traumatize people. And it's important to recognize that. And that's not to, to scare people away from it because they're also extremely safe. As far as substances you can put in your body, the, the classic psychedelics are among the, the very safest. Uh, but psychologically, it can be a lot. So it's good to be in the presence of someone who knows what they're doing, which in the traditional sense would be a shaman. Uh, there's people working as guides. There's therapists who do this work. And that's all primarily underground. Um, But even just a friend who has some experience who you trust implicitly to be there with you can be helpful. It's essential, seriously, that to have that support system is paramount, I think, before, during and after the experience and then integration, of course after that afterwards i've shared this before but i'll share with you for ayahuasca i did everything i read the a book where and you have to be careful so i was on wellbutrin and if you're on ssris or uh maois or specific antidepressants you have to cease and stop wean off of them and then go cold turkey uh on some specific ones 
or you will, there's a possibility that you could be gravely, you can die ultimately. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I've read. And I think there is some scientific data. I, I think it's been, you know, not a number of cases or whatever. But so I fought my point in all this is I followed that, then the diet. And, but it, because of my general anxiety disorder, what happens to me? Like I freak out packing and, in Mexico City, my connecting flight down to South America, to Ecuador, I have a panic attack and I miss my connecting flight. So I'm, I miss the first ceremony at the retreat that I was joining. But I was ultimately, it turned out to be fine. There was just so much churning and, and like agony because I was scared shitless, right? I was really worried so do you ever at some point if you have a client who do you ever dissuade them or say maybe this isn't the time for you to take that leap of faith that's a good question i don't try to persuade nor dissuade right i think that again only the individual can know if it's time for them, if it's right for them. And that can be hard to do. For example, the story you just told, having a panic attack, really the day you're supposed to be in ceremony or the day before, that might dissuade someone saying, okay, this is a sign that this isn't right. But then, you know, hearing you speak about your experiences, it sounds like you're very thankful that you followed through with it. Absolutely. Yeah. So it can be tricky, but I think there are instances. So for example, with ayahuasca, there are a number of contraindications and a lot of groups or shamans or retreats will have people follow a dieta that restricts what they're putting in their body in advance of it. Um, And they're, yeah, they're with, even the the other classical psychedelics, the wisdom is to avoid it if you happen to be on an SSRI or tamp it down or, you know, there's, there's many different approaches, but the idea is to ultimately limit the variables and limit the potential of, of ways it could go wrong. Um, so I wouldn't dissuade someone per se, but I will always make sure they really know what they're getting into to the extent that you can communicate, you know, there's the main aspect of it. You can't communicate. So you don't really know what you're getting into until you get into it. Right. And so I, I want to share and, and get your input on this. So everybody says set and setting. Yes, that's key. And then of course, part of ceremonies set your intention. Well, one, none of my intentions, like each one of my journeys went somewhere. For instance, I asked Mother Iyer, please let me see. I would love to have my father come to me. And uh, he showed up for a nanosecond in one of the ceremonies. But then Mother Iyer said, nope, we're going right we're going down (laughs) literally like into another portal and then i came to the realization that it wasn't really about 
him per se. There were other things that I needed to work on that were suppressed and somewhat glaring that maybe I was just blocking out. So I don't know about you, like how's your success rate been on your intentions that you've set before any psychedelic ceremony? I always say it doesn't always give me what I want, but it always gives me what I need. Yeah. So sorry to interject, but like some of my worst per se, quote unquote trips have been the most fulfilling and I've learned the most about myself. I mean, I have, I have one ceremony. So the, because I missed the one ceremony in Ecuador, I became friends with a, most of the group of my retreat. It was 35 or so of us. I told everybody, I feel like there's a little more work to do. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm going to head down to Peru and I'm going to Peru and I'm going to do a one-on-one. And they said, what are you, that's nuts. And I have ADHD, so I'm a feeler, right? We don't need to get into the details, but the point was it was the most horrific yet beautiful thing as far as a psychedelic experience concerning ayahuasca. Wow. Going back full circle to my point, like some of the most horrific bad experiences have been the most teachable moments or learning lessons for me. And did you find you were able to do the deeper work on yourself in that one-on-one? Yes. Hmm. And I'll be honest, so it's crazy and I feel I believe in interconnectedness and I was supposed to do it on October 4th but the shaman had to go back to the village where his family was because one of his family members was not well so we had to reschedule and we rescheduled on my mother's birthday October 7th and I so of course I got her like the biggest best bouquet of <laughs> flowers and I hadn't told her I just told her I was at a retreat I did not share with her until after the fact and so and you know she left me a voicemail I think while I was in ceremony but I felt like that was what the thing I'll share with everybody. It wasn't about my father. It was the message was I needed to be connected more with my mom and our relationship that had been strained. And the crazy thing and the beautiful thing about this was it gave me the strength after I stayed away because she wasn't doing well. It wasn't, I felt though it wasn't safe because her, you know, she was immunocompromised, her immunity was, and, but it gave me the strength to be, so I decided, I packed up my car and my dog, Rex, and literally when I found out, I became her primary caregiver. And it was because of that ayahuasca experience and what was told to me in many forms and fashions, which gave me the strength to do that. I know that wholeheartedly. That's phenomenal, Tom. Yeah. And I I think there's something to be said for that individual approach as well. And this is why Terrence McKenna emphasized the five grams in silent darkness. Because yes. in that situation, you're able to 
interface with the thing in itself. You're able to just experience the, and he's talking about psilocybin mushrooms, but yes. you know, you're able to experience the mushroom in itself. You're able to experience the workings of your own mind without any input, visual or auditory. And, you know, that's a pretty terrifying way to do it. Just being by yourself with your eyes closed, with an eye shade on and kind of being untethered from everything except the experience and your experience of your own consciousness. But it's also where very liberating as well. Yes, it's very liberating. And it's where you can do the deepest personal work. And there are many, many ways to do these things. And I think that if you're safe and you understand what you're getting into and you're with people you trust, then it's fine to experiment with different ways of doing it. But the different ways also provide different outcomes and different potentialities as well. Correct. And, but I, you know, there is a, a, a side or footnote to this. I do not encourage everybody to take that leap of faith that I did because that's not going to be the best fit for everybody. Um, it really just, it's a case by case individual on an individual basis. Would you not agree? Absolutely. And with this psychedelic renaissance that's happening, we have to approach things appropriately and carefully because there's going to be, and there already are a lot of people who really are gung ho and feel like none of the things that I have tried have worked. I've tried fixing my diet. I've tried the antidepressants. I've tried the talk therapy. I've spoken to the psychologist. I've spoken to the psychiatrist. I've tried this litany of medications and they hear the evidence that's coming out, the reporting that's coming out through maps, through the universities, that the effects of psychedelics are profound, that MDMA is curing people of PTSD, that psilocybin is eliminating the fear of death from stage four cancer patients. And so it's a narrow needle to thread where People need to understand what they're getting into because of the great potential for dysregulation that these things also present, psychologically speaking. Um, And also the idea that coming in with certainty that this thing is going to finally be the thing that fixes me is a dangerous or at least unbalanced approach because one it may not give you what you're looking for but again it gives you what you need even if it doesn't give you what you want so it's just a a delicate balance with these things becoming more popular more mainstream accepted uh, more people are gonna be tapping into them and it just means that the people who are in the know who have experience who have worked with these things need to be cradling the process which isn't to say 
directing it in a way that they want to see happen, but directing it so that it unfolds appropriately like a child growing into its own adult. Um, right. Hopefully we'll be able to do that. But what scares me, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen it yourself, is the ecotourism around particularly ayahuasca. There's horrific stories about women who've been raped by shamans. There was a, I don't know, you heard the story about the Canadian citizen. who's a young, who's around, I think 40, 42, but he became, had quite a proclivity towards ayahuasca, did a lot of ceremonies, and then he snapped and ended up murdering the the elderly female, most respected shaman. And it was, I can't remember what village in Peru, but they ended up hanging him by a chain. Wow. And so there's a, a, a balance and it, it scares me about what's going on with these. For me, I believe that these plants were they're here for a reason, no matter what religion or spirituality that you have. They're like breadcrumbs, I think. So I, I like to joke and say that who's to say that Moses really, that his burning bush wasn't some sort of mescaline or peyote that he ate in the desert. Yeah, It doesn't mean that I don't, that there's not a God or it wasn't, but how do we not know that? Or the fact that we evolved as a species because we were struggling trying to feed ourselves and we came across psilocybin or psychedelic mushrooms and our consciousness expanded, right? Yeah. They're not cure-alls. Like just because you do a ceremony, it's not going to fix you. And this is, I'm going to give you the lead on this. Like you, the integration, can you talk about how important it is after the fact? Yeah. And I think that's exactly what, those examples you brought up speak to is that these experiences have to be integrated properly and that some people just kind of end up chasing the dragon, so to speak, where you feel like, oh, there's more work I need to do. Therefore, I need to do another ceremony. And you just keep going back and back and back and back. But if you aren't taking what you're gaining from those, and making meaningful changes in your life in the meantime, then you're just going to continue spinning your wheels in a lot of cases. Yes, sensory overload, and then you're not actually absorbing the lessons or what you could have learned from that ceremony or if you do it two or three, but... I don't know about you, if you experienced, but there were people that I came across from my retreat and just traveling who were literally going from retreat to retreat. Mm. And I'm not going to judge them for that, but I I felt as though, wait, when are you going to get off the wheel to let it integrate so that you can go whatever pain and suffering that brought you here just like myself, whatever your journey may be, so that you can integrate and go back into the world of whatever, you know, your office job or 
starting your passion project or whichever, whatever it may be. Yeah. Did you experience any of that? Well, yeah, I think this speaks to the difference between a retreat and something that is integrated into the culture where there's support built into just the day-to-day living and what you're speaking to of kind of the breadcrumbs thing. It's, you know, it's widely accepted at this point that many, if not most, if not who knows all major religious movements throughout history have had a psychedelic underpinning. And with that, it's built into the culture where it's not that you're hopping on a plan to do four, four days in Costa Rica, and then you're hopping on a plane to come back and then you're left kind of wandering through it. It's that you have the built in communal accountability that is helping the process of integration unfold as you go. And I think that this is an area that our culture where we just want the quick fix can really learn from is we need to actually be integrating the psychedelics in such a way that we're building a more healthy culture, just consensus day-to-day culture for everybody so that as we go, we're making it far more likely that uh, people are going to have beneficent experiences and take them back and not have these experiences where they spin out or where the power of being a shaman figure goes to their head into their ego and becomes manipulable uh in these devastating ways so right i think the building it in to the culture is going to be one of the major tasks that we collectively face as the unfolding of this psychedelic renaissance continues to come. What do you foresee and what stage per se, quote unquote, are we in the renaissance, the psychedelic renaissance? Yeah, I think we're very early. Um, I think we're very early and these things move quickly, but with that, because we're working in a domain, we're dealing with, the psychedelic domain, which has so much mystery, it has so much ineffability. We're going to have to figure it out as we go. There's only so much we can prepare for by creating a proper, healthy infrastructure. So, but I think we're very early, and I think that there's potential for it to go in a lot of ways. I can see a world in which you can go into Walmart and buy microdose caps that are made by uh, Nestle or something. And it's like, <laughs> that could happen. I'm, how do you feel about that? I, I'm a little skeptical. I, I'm, I'm torn, I should say about, so just like everything, this, I will be biased. My concern is, will the pharmaceutical companies somehow miss the the actual you know like i think it's great and i i'm i'm thrilled to hear but i talked to shane moss who's a comedian he did a documentary there's two sides like microdosing there's proven data that shows that it alleviates stress but 
then you don't get the same experience. And you said psilocybin is the one that calls most to you, but haven't you learned the most from those actual pure psilocybin trips and experiences? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But again, this speaks to that. There's many ways to engage with these things and it's all kind of an experiment because we yeah. don't have the cultural infrastructure right. built yet where it's kind of the wild west where everybody is figuring it out as we go and i i know some people who have really benefited greatly from microdosing who have never touched the macro dose which isn't to say that they wouldn't benefit more from that but right. yeah there's many many paths along this road and we just have to be be making sure that people are are doing it properly. Um, one thought I have in terms of this integrating with society, and this connects to the the work with men that I do, is we do not have rites of passage in this culture, and therefore many, so many people and of course, many, many men grow up without, we don't have the wise elders in the culture guiding us. We don't have the experience of going through that passageway to come out the other side, a man, these things, the idea of the, the rite of passage for the boys was to remove them from the material comfort that is represented archetypally by the mother and material matter m-a-t-e-r means mother right. and bring you through this kind of harrowing experience from which you emerge understanding the at least the the beginnings of what it means to be a man and in our culture we have so many boys walking around in man's suits and <laughs> causing a lot of destruction and a yes. lot of internal suffering in them as well. And so there potentially could be a role for psychedelics. And I don't purport to know what this might look like or at what age it would be appropriate or any of that, but there potentially could be a role for psychedelics to fill this ritualized space of helping young men go through a rite of passage to come out the other side understanding the responsibility that comes with being a man so that we don't have all of these 30 40 50 year old boys in the world. <laughs> well i'm so glad you brought that up i'm gonna again talk about my personal experience when i when depression emerged they throw through me on prozac paxil and it was just a just uh, nothing was taking or whatever. And so then to your point, I can't think of anything better than to have had a profound experience. I think it would have been so much more helpful psilocybin because that would have been seminal, like a rite of passage for me because part of my problem was, is I wasn't able to express to my family what was going on. And they were just like, oh, maybe you need to get on another antidepressant. And you, you, you understand what I'm saying? Do, uh, am I explaining? 
Is it making sense? Where I just yeah. feel like psilocybin would have opened up a realm of consciousness where I would have learned so much more instead of just taking a pill and continuing. And I'll go back to it in my siloed life where we are not thinking of outside the box ways to approach our feelings, particularly as men. Yeah. And I think this speaks to how our culture doesn't have the infrastructure for, um, for psychological development built into it. Our fathers don't teach us how to be a man because their fathers didn't teach them. And so when we see that there's a problem and the masculine brain, the works as there's a problem, let's find the solution, let's build the solution. And so we create these pills that people take every day and we say, there you go. When really the underlying issue is that we don't have the cultural infrastructure to help people to develop psychologically. And right, could psilocybin fill that role? It's a question and it needs to be approached from the spiritual dimension as well as the scientific dimension because the developing brain and these sorts of things, at what age is it appropriate? It's a question to to explore, but we are dying because we don't have these rights. And so we, we silo ourselves and suffer in shame and in silence. And this is a, a blight that men, I, I work with a lot of men, and this is a blight that men suffer from. And this is a potential way out of that. But again, it has to be built in to the culture as an infrastructure that yes, can hold absolutely. all of this. There has to be infrastructure. It has to be controlled. Otherwise, it will continue to be like the Wild West in South America with the shamans and, and the stories that I was sharing with you and the ecotourism because uh, that's the thing. It's a fine line, right? Uh, I'm hopeful. And I and I'm certainly in favor of it, but I also worry will it get skewed? That's all I guess is my point. It's a fair worry. It's a fair worry because there's right now the work is largely being done in the clinical setting, and it's largely being done by uh, universities, by MAPS, yep. who's working with the FDA. And so these things have very particular ways of doing things. And they're even beyond careful because their intention is to end up allowing these things legally to become prescribable medicines. And so there, you know, a lot of the university studies will just outright not enroll anybody who has certain psychiatric conditions that could potentially harm the individual, but also lead to the studies not being a success. So, but right now, this is the, this is the plane in which this is unfolding most dramatically and dynamically, but there's always underground work going on. There's always work in other countries going on. And, um, so I, I agree with you. I think that 
it's unknown and it's it's nuanced it's shades of gray we need to prepare for the best and the worst and hope that we can thread the needle right in the sweet spot yeah but we won't know until we try <laughs> so. yeah, yeah and we're trying no, nothing's gonna stop it at this point it's the momentum is too much so we're making it happen collectively and we'll see I mean, Oregon, of course, they voted in favor and the program will start next year, right? Yes. But do you see that happening in any other states? You you foresee that? I know it's decriminalizing like Denver and Oakland, but where actual other states will allow this to happen. Yeah, the I think the decriminalization movement is going to sweep pretty quickly as the cannabis one did years ago. Right. Um, and in terms of the legalizing of the therapeutic modality, which is has also been happening here in Oregon, that I, I have seen that there is legislation moving in other places. I'm not sure exactly where at this time, but that will also sweep through the nation. Um, probably the the West Coast states will lead the charge on that. But yeah, I, I see it unfolding and these things change very rapidly. These things change very rapidly. We can think 10 years ago, it was, and even less than 10 years ago, it was a hot button political issue, cannabis legalization. Now it's like, almost nobody talks about it. It's not a political issue. It's, you know, the cultural consciousness has shifted very quickly. Um, and of course there are still holdouts and that's going to happen as well, but these things move very fast and it just also speaks to a, another reason we need to be prepared, treating this with care, stewarding right. and midwifing it properly. Right. We're in the infancy stages currently. Do you see it, the scalability or, or expediting, or at least at the same pace as cannabis? Or what do you think? Well, everything in the world seems like it's moving faster and faster. So yes. from that sense, right. it probably will move faster and faster. I think once the federal scheduling changes which will happen as soon as either MDMA or psilocybin, whatever comes first, probably MDMA is going to be deemed by the FDA to be a legal medicine. Once these federal scheduling changes come, I think the floodgates are just going to All open. open. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Let's talk about your group of men. Like, can you elaborate on fast? I want to know, like, how does the program is it 12 weeks or how long of these programs? Yeah. So my business is called the integrated man. And yes. through that we do coaching group coaching courses. So it's doing small cohorts of men and there's a curriculum. And right now the course we offer is 12 weeks and the idea is really to help men get into alignment 
and it's addressing the physiological, the psychological, the psycho-spiritual, um, and then helping to steward meaningful change, pragmatic change in their lives. Um, and I also host a couple other larger, just free men's groups. Uh, I do one through the Portland Psychedelic Society. We meet every month. Anyone can join. And that those groups are oftentimes just speaking on issues that we're facing, things that we would like support in, things that we would like to gather or share wisdom in. Um, but fundamentally, it's about creating a communal space because of the ways that we're taught as men by culture that we need to keep everything inside. We need to go out, do it on our own. Don't talk about it. Don't complain. Uh, especially don't reveal your true feelings or emotions. And the groups, which this is by no means a new thing, but the groups allow us to come together in a communal space and see and hear that, oh, he's going through the same thing that I just went through. Maybe I can share something that will be meaningful or useful to him. For your pr programs, when these men come for the group sessions, what is it, just humor me, what is it like? Are they, some of them hesitant to share or is it people just willingly, you know, open to, to share their trials and tribulations or their struggles of why they joined the group and what they're seeking? Yeah, there's quite a bit of variation as with personality in general. Some people are more reticent. Some people are more open. Um, but this speaks to the feeling of safety and it's the same in a, a ayahuasca ceremony the feeling of safety knowing that i'm held here whatever comes up is okay these people are not here to judge me they're actually here in support of me and therefore i feel a freedom to be able to use my voice to express myself to feel what i'm feeling and you know, to take it into the darkness, if that's where I need to go to take it into the light, if that's where I need to go. But knowing that it's all welcome is really profoundly helpful because a lot of people, men and women don't have spaces where one, a lot of people just don't have anybody to talk to. That's a real state of our world. Um, Particularly now with all the isolation from the pandemic. Sure. And, and two, a lot of people don't have a group space in right. which they can share and hear and, and everything in between as well. So it's really valuable just even if the level of the conversation doesn't rise to important psychological, philosophical, societal matters just the fact of being there and being feeling safe to share uh, creates a lot of 
potentiality for change. Well, I'm thrilled to hear you're doing, so you're doing this in Portland once a month, is that? Yeah, so the psychedelic men's group, we meet once a month, and then my, also the free men's group through the Integrated Man, we meet once a month, um, and that's, like I said, completely free, so love to see you at either of those. Oh, I mean, it's virtual, is this something yeah, that I yeah. could... We do it online. Okay. Yep. It's excellent. Um, so it's all it's all virtual. Yes. Until, you know, a later date, TBD. Right. <laughs> I'm thrilled to hear this because mental health is become, I, I say it all the time on this podcast, it's become an epidemic in itself. And if you are isolated as a man and you don't have anyone to share Let's say you've been through, you just went through a bad divorce or a bad breakup and you're isolated because of a pandemic and, and then the, your upbringing where you've never been taught how to share your feelings, then you have no outlet. Well, you're offering an, an outlet for men to feel welcome and to take a different approach and, and perspective on how, how how to move proceed mm. right yeah. and that's why i wanted to speak to you that's what was so thrilling to me yeah and it, exactly what you said man the the mental health crisis and pandemic of its own that is really overtaking the world and particularly the youth these days um but it's really touching so many people it's causing kind of an overload in the therapeutic world i it, people out there trying to find a therapist during the covid pandemic like forget about it they're they're not making it happen so these spaces yeah where we come together and talk are important when my mother was ill i, I was saw it and was seeking a uh, a therapist and it took me forever mm. to finally find one until after she passed away but i was so grateful that i was able to find one a couple months after she passed away but it was an arduous process and that's a whole nother problem is uh therapists are just overworked and and inundated and i know they're overwhelmed mm. Because yeah. there's so many people in need, you know? Yeah. And again, this is an outcropping from the state of our culture. Our culture yeah. has a sickness and it spreads through all of us because we're not attending to what is actually important. We're getting distracted by what is flashy and we're being pulled away into domains that aren't actually helpful for us. Um, and we're not emphasizing what is actually important, which is connecting with ourselves, our true humanness, connecting with our sources of meaning, being in community with people who we trust and love and spreading trust and love through our actions. and this needs to change. And I think it is changing. And I think the psychedelics are going to help it change. And I think you doing the work you do, spreading messages through your 
your podcast and so many people so many people are awaking and becoming aware and opening their hearts and making this change that desperately needs to happen happen so i am quite hopeful quite optimistic there's a lot of doom and gloom out there but i really believe that we can get it together and that we are well listen keith i can't thank you enough i've really enjoyed this it's been awesome it's been my pleasure tom one of my favorite articles that keith has published is called the psychedelic man he says the psychedelic man is the man the world is waiting for us to become And in order for us to become agents of healing for others, we must first heal ourselves so that we may embody a position of healing in the world. As you can hear, Keith has a centered spirit and who inspired me in our chat to be present, honor emotions, and hold space for my personal experiences. If any part of this episode resonated with you, please check out more from Keith on keithgilmore.com. Thanks for being here with us today. Join us next time to discuss astrology, universality, and conscious living with Indra Rinsler.